This is Professor Gwyneth Talley, and I'll be reviewing Rachel Newcomb's everyday life in global Morocco for our World Ethnography Project. The book was published in 2017 by Indiana University Press, and it's part of a larger series entitled Public Cultures of the Middle East and North Africa with Paul Silverstein, Susan Slimovich, and Ted Swedenberg as editors. So how do people around the world encounter globalization in their daily lives? Since the publication of Shana Cohen's Searching for a Different Future, The Rise of Global Middle Class in Morocco, published in 2004, there's been little detailed ethnographic evidence for understanding how globalization affects the average urban Moroccan family. With internet usage growing, importation of international goods, and Moroccans immigrating for work in foreign countries, Rachel Newcomb follows one middle class family in Fez and how they address globalization in their daily lives. This ethnography of the urban middle class demonstrates how Fezzis are constantly reevaluating, reconstituting, and adapting their lives and values and ideas in the grip of globalization of Morocco. Rachel Newcomb is a professor of anthropology at Rollins College and a co-editor of Encountering Morocco, Fieldwork and Cultural Understanding, published in 2013. The author was born and raised in North America and has spent some numerous years in Morocco and married a Moroccan. She flawlessly demonstrated her familiarity and knowledge of Moroccan life in her first monograph, Women of Fez, published in 2009. As Doyle Hatt in 2010 referred to Newcomb's first monograph, there is no hint of the exotic in Newcomb's Fez. Newcomb's book moves from Cohen's initial theorizing of global middle class in 2004 to giving prime examples of how average Moroccans confront the continual collision of traditional life and globalized expectations. Using vignettes of the Benjaloon family to illustrate the effects of globalization on marriage, reproduction, labor, diet, and urban life in the Ville Nouvelle of Fez, she demonstrates how Moroccans manage typical dilemmas. By spending extensive time with this family, the author argues that everyday life has changed on a local, national, and global level. Yet these changes are subtle. Some inter interactions feel like direct clashes, while others are results of chain reactions, which theorized globalization does not address. Only lived realities can demonstrate these issues. Newcomb seeks to illustrate how people all over the world encounter, engage, and navigate globalization in locally and culturally specific ways. The five main chapters focus on the themes of transnational suspicions, reproduction, labor, food consumptions and changing diet, and finally urban living. While seemingly arbitrary, they are the primary issues that Newcomb found affected the Benjaloons the most rather than concentrating on her original fieldwork. By focusing on just one family, she effectively demonstrates the deep-rooted effects of globalization. The book's first and strongest chapter follows Rashid's trials and tribulations of his marriage to and subsequent divorce from Nejma, a seemingly pious Moroccan woman living in Texas. The couple met online, proceeded to Skype, and called each other, eventually leading to an engagement. When the Benjaloon family met the future in-laws in Casablanca, they encountered incident after incident, which quickly demonstrated the tensions of what was expected and the lack of cordial familial relations. The marriage fell apart shortly after the honeymoon, during which Nejma demanded luxurious hotels and shopping. Nejma had assumed the wealth of Rashid's family based on the family name and Fezzi origins. She hurriedly ret returned to the States and began divorce proceedings. After several thousand dollars, many trips to court, and frequent appeals to the reconcile, they were divorced. Nejma used the 2004 Mudawana, or the Family Law Code, which ensured more rights for women, including the right to instigate divorce on the grounds of discord to her advantage. 
The chapter examines the intricacies of Moroccan marriages and expectations, and the substantial changes happening to the institution since women are just as frequently migrating as men. Traditional family-arranged marriages to people within the same cities are now shifting to men and women choosing their own partners in Morocco and abroad, leading to a myriad of new problems. Newcomb acknowledges how the global image of modern Morocco is of a liberal and progressive Muslim society, when in reality there are enormous social problems such as a lack of significant rights for single women, and the social blame put on women for premarital sexual activity, and a lack of acknowledgement of children born out of wedlock. The subsequent chapters follow Hanan's journey in chapter 2 to become pregnant, accompanying the woman to two traditional healers in hopes of helping her conceive a child. In chapter 3, the labor of two brothers, one a successful businessman who sells secondhand clothes, and the other who sits in the cafe waiting for work. In, in chapter 4, the pressures of cooking for the global family and their changing tastes and schedules. And finally, in chapter 5, the brother that resists the gentrification of his neighborhood. These tableaus leave the reader feeling like they are part of the family while understanding the subtler impacts of global influence. The main strength of this book is Newcomb's vivid, in-depth window into a large Fezzi family. Her style blends anthropological and historical knowledge and fieldwork into a digestible text that continues to follow the writing against culture standard we have come to expect from her, quoting Lila Abu-Lagot there. The accessibility of Newcomb's style makes the recondite language of other scholars unpalatable for a few days after this reading. The subtleties and the complications of her participants make them individuals and not broad generalizations. Her interwoven bits of dialogue of the men and women she speaks with give the reader a fly-on-the-wall perspective as if we are anthropologists of the anthropologist in situ. Each chapter vividly illustrates the person and enables the reader to empathize with the problems they face. The first three thematic chapters are the strongest, focusing on extremely nuanced examples of the Benjaloon siblings through marriage, reproduction, and labor in a globalized society. So the ethnographic vignette I want to share with you comes from chapter one, Transnational Suspicions, Marriage, and Changing Gender Roles. And this follows Rashid in his pursuit of finding a wife, subsequently marrying her, and then um, the ensuing divorce. And I really like this vignette because it really paints a picture of frustration, um, in-law encounters with the in-laws, um, first meetings, and expectations, and really how uh, deliberately you can see through Newcomb's writing the struggles that Rashid and Nejma uh, go through. So it starts on page 29. And I'll let you know when it ends at the end of this quote. After the worldwide economic downturn of 2008, Rashid Benjaloon, with more time on his hands, began to think it was time for a life change. Although he worked when he could, frequently returning to Spain to keep up his residency requirements and to search for short-term labor contracts, the steady six-month contracts he depended on had become a thing of the past. He started going to the mosque regularly, and when he was in Fez, he stopped spending as much time with his old friends who still drank alcohol and were going nowhere in, with their lives. He also began to think about marriage. In the past, he had dated women in Spain and even had a girlfriend or two whom he'd been serious about, but now he decided it was time to settle down with someone who shared his values. Hard work, family, and a pious life. In 2011, on an internet dating site for Muslims, he met Nejma, a Moroccan in her 30s who lived in Texas and worked in an insurance office. Nejma wore the hijab and told Rashid she had been engaged to a Moroccan but had never married. Her former fiancé, Nejma claimed, was not religious enough. After an internet courtship of a few months, during which they spoke frequently on Skype, Nejma and Rashid became engaged. 
Rashid was looking forward to starting over in America and be had begun studying English in his spare time, but wanted to meet her in person before getting married. Applying for a tourist visa in the United States was out of the question since he knew that his recent patchy work history would definitely cause this consulate to refuse him. Nejma promised she would come to Morocco to spend time with him, but she continued to postpone her visit, citing the inappropriateness of dating before a proper Islamic marriage. The sheikh she had been consulted with said it was better to marry first than face the temptation to commit sins during an engagement. She insisted they do things properly, with him speaking to her family first and then setting a date for the wedding. Rashid had mixed feelings about marrying her without having seen her in person, but he agreed to visit her family in Casablanca to formalize their engagement. Together with his uncle and mother, he traveled to Casablanca, where he arrived at Nejma's family home in a modest working-class neighborhood full of identical five-story buildings. The family did not invite him inside. Rashid's mother, Latifa, was particularly insulted, saying that even if the family insisted on separating men from women, at least she should have been, been invited inside to meet the women of Nejma's family. Instead, they joined Nejma's brother and uncle in a cafe where her family laid out the terms of the marriage, including a substantial bride price, sadak, of several thousand dollars as well as jewelry. If Rashid wanted to marry her, they insisted he would gather the money to show that he respected her reputation and her good name since she was, in their words, still a girl, Mazel Bint. This was assertion on Nishma's family part that she had never been a married and that she was still a virgin and that therefore she could demand a higher bride price than someone who was divorced. They agreed tentatively to a wedding four months away. Latifa had concerns about the fact that the relationship between their two families was almost non-existent. Was Nishma's family just inhospitable? Why had they not invited Rashid's family into their home? And why had no one in Nishma's family come to Fez? Rashid brought up the issue with Nejma, who, in response, sent her mother, sister, and aunt to Fez to visit his family. The Benjaloons prepared a dinner in their honor, inviting several members of their immediate family, but only women, respecting Nejma's request to Rashid that no men be present. Nejma's mother and aunt arrived two hours late, citing problems with the train. They stayed for only an hour, refusing the several hours of socializing that the Benjaloons had expected, and departed shortly after drinking their after-dinner tea. Latifa had a bad feeling about the marriage and was convinced that the two families were incompatible. By Fezzi standards of hospitality, had Nejma's family really been interested in forging an alliance, they would have been friendlier, at least stayed a few hours to make up for two hours being two hours late. The Benjaloon family did not practice gender segregation, and aside from funerals, most ceremonies, such as weddings and parties, were mixed. Rashid and his sisters, however, convinced Latifa to put aside her reservations. Rashid was in his 30s, after all, and it was time to marry. There would be more work for him in the United States, where the unemployment crisis was not as severe as it was in Spain. Privately, although his sister Ilham had also found the family to be rude, she invoked regionalism and speculated that it might have, to have something to do with their origins from a city near the Algerian border, saying, People from there don't have the same manners as people from Fez. They probably think we're snobs from Fez, so it, takes, it might take them some time to warm up to us. Among them, the Benjaloons raised the money agreed on the marriage contract. If they're so religious, Morad pointed out, why are they demanding such a large sadaq for her? Many Islamists decreed the fact that materialism and the high cost of weddings were leading to fewer people getting married, so there had been a move in recent years to encourage Islamic marriages without all the associated forms of consumption, particularly the sadaq or expensive weddings. Some highly educated Moroccans also eschew the customs of the bride price, writing down only as a symbolic token in their marriage contracts, such as a wedding ring. But most members of the Benjaloon family did not question this, accepting that the basic cultural fact that Moroccan weddings came with the custom of money, changing hands in preparation for setting up a new household. 
To afford the sadak, Rashid returned to Spain, working as much as he could in the months leading up to the wedding, while his mother gathered family heirlooms and sold a dilapidated apartment which she owned in the Medina, which brought in a modest monthly income. His siblings contributed whatever they could as well. In June, Nejma arrived. She had been talking on Skype with Rashid for a year now, and by his account, their their first in-person meeting went well. He found her just as attractive and modest as she seemed on the internet, wearing a fitted headscarf and a long but stylish skirt and blouse. The night she arrived, he met her in Casablanca, where he took her to a seafood restaurant a friend had recommended. He stayed overnight with a cousin in Rabat, and then he and Nejma spent the next day together walking around the city and talking about the future. She said she'll go right back to America and apply for the green card for me to move over there so we can be together, he reported. He was nervous about his lack of English, but she assured him that in Texas his Spanish would give him a good start and the English would come with time. The wedding was to take place in two days, and her family members who were arranging it had been uncommunicative with him about the details. When he asked if they might go to her house and visit them, she refused, saying they were too busy working on preparations. He respected her wishes and returned to Fez to wait. For a few months now, his only contract with her family had been when she sent over documents necessary for the marriage permit. When the wedding day approached, the Benjamin siblings, their mother, and a few other relatives traveled to Casablanca, unsure of what to expect. The wedding was held on two floors of an apartment that belonged to someone Nejma's family knew, and as expected, the men's party was on one floor and the women's on the other. However, aside from the gender segregation, there was still music and dancing. Rashid's family had paid for the catering at considerable expense, even though the bride's family traditionally covered wedding arrangements. The couple signed the wedding contract and left around 11 that night in a borrowed car to spend their wedding night in a four-star hotel Rashid had reserved for them. The next morning, they traveled to the southern Morocco for their honeymoon. The next few days while the couple was on their honeymoon, no one in the family heard from Rashid except for brief text messages and photos. The couple looked happy in photos. But a few days into the marriage, Rashid called Murad, asking him to send money around the equivalent of $500. Murad sent it to him, no questions asked, but after five days, two days earlier than expected, the couple returned to Fez completely out of money. Rashid and Nejma would stay in a family apartment with Latifa, but Nejma was visibly unhappy with this arrangement, complaining about the tight quarters, the uncomfortable bed, the lack of pillows, and the fact that Rashid did not have any money left to put them up in a hotel. She was waiting for jewelry and an antique gold belt, typically worn with kaftans, that his family had given her, which she had been, which had been at the jeweler's to be fitted. Rashid, Latifa, and Nejma went to the jeweler the evening the couple returned, but found the shop closed. The next day, they, re- they returned to the jeweler. The jeweler would be ready later in the day, and Rashid asked Nejma if she, wa- she wanted him to show her around the city or meet some other members of his family, but she said she just wanted to go to a cafe and wait. They sat together, not speaking, for an interminable amount of time, and then returned to Latifa's for lunch. After lunch, the jewelry was finally ready, but then Nejma announced she was returning to Casablanca. She refused to stay another night in the family apartment, she told Rashid, which she found uncomfortable. He assumed she was just tired from the strain of the past week's travel, but when he talked to her later that day, her phone was turned off. He left several messages, sick with worry, but she did not return his call until the next day. Nejma was supposed to spend another week in Morocco, but announced that her plans had changed and she had to return to Texas in two days. He offered to come to Casablanca to try to make things up with her, but she told him, Only if you can support me like a real man, which doesn't seem possible. So, I don't want to see you.
stunned by her comment, and in truth by the events of the week of the honeymoon. From the first moment they arrived in Agadir, everything had gone badly. Nejma found the three-star hotel he'd reserved to be not nice enough for her standards, and she insisted on moving to a four-star resort. Rashid was too ashamed to tell her it was beyond his ability to pay. At the resort, food was included in their bill, but after one meal there, Nejma told him the buffet was unappetizing and demanded they eat at restaurants she had researched in advance, all of which were expensive and filled with foreign tourists. Rashid was easygoing and had envisioned that they might go to cafes or modest restaurants, or even eat fresh grilled fish at the port, but Nejma was horrified by the suggestion and accused him of not valuing her. She had no interest in walks on the beach and spent most of her time shopping, bent on acquiring as many things as possible to take back to Texas, ranging from clothes to expensive purses to Moroccan souvenirs for her friends at home. The morning he called Murad a desperation, Rashid had spent all of the $1,500 he had brought with him to cover the expenses of the honeymoon. The $500 Murad sent him lasted only another two nights, after which Nejma had to put part of the cost of the final night at the hotel on her credit card, which had infuriated her. She again accused Rashid of not valuing her sufficiently, going back to the day of the wedding when she said his family had chosen an inferior catering company which had delivered the food that was of low quality. She cited the first hotel in Agadir and most of his ideas about the restaurants as evidence of his cheapness, claiming that he had deceived her about his income and the amount of money he had. I wouldn't have married you if I'd known you were so cheap, she said. You deceived me. With your Benjaloon name and your work in Spain, I thought you were someone else. Rashid replied, I thought you were religious and didn't care about money and gifts, he argued back. He told me you like you told me you liked me for who I was and the money m was I wouldn't have married you if I'd known you'd been so cheap, she said. You deceived me with your Benjaloon name and your work in Spain. I thought you were somebody else. And I thought you were religious and didn't care about money and gifts, he argued back. You told me you liked me for who I was and that the money most important thing was to be a good Muslim, not to be so obsessed with money. Rashid realized too late that Nejma and her family had assumed his family was wealthy based solely on their family name and Fezzi origins. His side of the story was that he never deceived her about his own wealth, and that he explained to her that he worked in Spain when he could, but had not had the same job opportunities that had been available only a few years before. I don't know what else she wanted. We had an agreement about the Sadaq. I found a way to cover that. All our other conversations were about how we would start a life together and support each other. I told her I was a hard worker, and that we might start our new lives with nothing, but we would grow with time, and as for her, I thought she was a religious girl. I didn't see anything religious about her when we got there. She only asked to go to the mosque once for Friday prayers, but all I saw was someone who treated me like I was a bank. For the rest of her time in Morocco, Nejma avoided Rashid. He went to the airport only on the day she was scheduled to return to the United States, but could not find her, and after driving around Casablanca visiting all the places he knew her family might be, he finally found her brother at his workplace. The brother admitted that Nejma had not left, but told him to stay away from her. She had lied to Rashid about returning early and stayed another week in Morocco. Her mobile phone was turned off. Soon after that, he received an official notice that she was petitioning for divorce and spousal support. In the petition, she claimed she was unemployed, which he knew was not true, and she asked for the equivalent of several months' rent, alimony, and several thousand dirhams for damages to her reputation. She also stated that he only wanted to marry her to immigrate to the United States. I'm divorcing you because we're incompatible and also because you didn't respect me, she told him one of the few times she agreed to communicate once she left Morocco. He asked her what she meant by lack of respect. You were so cheap on our honeymoon, she explained, and when you took me to the cheap fish restaurant in Casablanca the day we met. You never bought me one present except for when I had to ask, and the catering your family ordered for our wedding was horrible. The chicken was cold, 
and because of the new Madawana, I'll get everything I'm asking for. All I'll have to do is come back and sign the papers. You're going to pay. Rashid consulted a close family friend who was a lawyer who looked at the conditions of the marriage contract. Rashid pointed out that the contract said she was unemployed. It also, he said, claimed she was a virgin, though he found out on their wedding night that this was not true. Nijma had been briefly married in the States, he learned, although she'd divorced right away. Originally, she had told him that she, only that she had been engaged to someone. The lawyer consulted a colleague who had often handled transnational divorce cases, and the colleague explained that marriage and divorce records in the United States were public. At considerable expense, Rashid paid the second lawyer, who had connections in America, to obtain copies of both the marriage and divorce decrees. To his surprise, he discovered Nejma's brief marriage hadn't lasted more than two years. He filed a countersuit for marriage fraud, since virginity in Morocco still makes a woman more marriageable than someone who is divorced. So for Nejma to claim that she was a virgin significantly increased her value in the eyes of the Moroccan law. Additionally, it was technically illegal for, Moroccan who, for a Moroccan who married abroad to neglect to register a marriage in Morocco. In his petition, he asked for the return of the jewelry his family had given her. What followed next was a legal nightmare that took up much of Rashid's time and energy over the next year, as he pursued both cases through the courts of Casablanca, where she filed, and Fez, where he filed. Nejma came to Morocco once and they met in court. The judge urged them to stay together, which Rashid was willing to do, but Nejma refused and said she would never stay married to him. Most of the time, he was in court alone, with his lawyer facing her lawyer, and the cases were repeatedly deferred as the lawyers asked for more time or the judges asked for more paperwork. During this time, Rashid was unable to travel to Spain for work, even when his friends there had called to let him know about more about available work contracts. He worked in Fez and he could, when he could, but was now receiving very little income. The Moroccan courts repeatedly refused to accept the marriage and divorce documents from the United States, often for puzzling reasons, such as too few stamps on the documents, or that the documents looked like photocopies, which they were, although with stamps certifying them. Nejma's lawyer repeatedly filed for delays, a strategy that Re Rashid realized only too late was meant to delay the clock on the divorce so that he would be responsible for support during the time they were legally married. He spent several hundred dollars obtaining translations and multiple copies of the marriage and divorce decrees from the United States. Rashid and his lawyer tried several times to have the police question Nejma about her first marriage in the United States and serve court papers to her house in Morocco, particularly when they were aware she would be in the country, but the police were never able to find her. Ultimately, the Moroccan courts granted Nejma her divorce, but they ordered both Nejma and Rashid to pay nominal sums that ended up canceling each other out. Several months later, through her lawyer, Nejma served him with additional lawsuits seeking support, nafaka, for the time they had been married, in which she claimed to be unemployed in Texas. Even though she was no longer in Morocco, the money would be transferred to her through her lawyer. Rashid and his family had spent over $10,000, he said, on the wedding, on the jewelry, on the honeymoon, then on the legal costs, and he admitted to feeling completely blindsided by his ex-wife's actions. If she didn't like me in person, then why did she allow the wedding to take place, Rashid asked. Why did she get out of it in the end? She probably spent more on plane tickets than on her own lawyers. She accused me of deceiving her and not being what she thought I was. But I don't know what that means, except that she must have believed I had money because of the family name. I never let her on, and she's the one who deceived me. When, we're when we talked on Skype, she always presented herself as religious. And if you're truly religious, you shouldn't care so much about money. Rashid believed that Nejma's reasons for marrying him were solely materialistic, when he did not realize until after that they were, on, they were together in person. Rashid believed that Nejma's reasons for marrying him were solely materialistic, which he did not realize until after they were together in person. 
Over the internet, she seemed to him like a deeply spiritual woman interested in meeting a pious husband and starting a new life together. In person, she was happy only when he bought things for her. He had envisioned a romantic honeymoon full of walks on the beach and discussions about their future together, but even when she had just put her bags in the hotel room, she asked if we could leave to go shopping, he said. I bought her a Prada bag. It cost one night in the hotel, which I couldn't afford, and when I questioned that, she said I shouldn't have gotten married if I couldn't afford to be married. The next day, she wanted diamond earrings. She said when her best friend was on her honeymoon, each day the husband bought her a special gift to show how much he loved her. She suggested the value of those special gifts should be each of several hundred dollars, and said I should have planned for this part of our honeymoon. She accused me of being cheap and not loving her. Is this what an Islamic marriage is supposed to be? So this section ends on page 36, and I just, I love this particular vignette um, because it's, it's sad and it shows so much frustration on the part of the husband. And also, it really illustrates Newcomb's uh, distinct entrance into showing what a globalized world this is in terms of looking for... Um, marriage between two Moroccans, two Moroccans that have both traveled outside their countries um, in search for work and economic gain, and then hope to maintain their expectations of what they think a um, Moroccan marriage should be, especially within this kind of new environment. So <clears throat> while Newcomb knows Rashid and he, she knows the family very well, I think this is a really interesting um, discussion of expectations and um, changing marriage practices and I think that's the power of Newcomb's writing is that ability to bring sympathy to the characters um, and the characters being her informants and so um, an ethnography that's so skillfully written where you start to empathize with them you start to feel their struggle I think is very powerful and that's what a good ethnography does. It brings the reader in. It really demonstrates very clearly um, some of these changing uh, roles and, and traditions. And then she goes on to really go through each part of um, the engagement, the courtship, the marriage, the honeymoon, and then the divorce proceedings. And I think she wraps history and... Um, relationship and understanding the anthropological understanding really well um, throughout the rest of this book too. So I think as an ethnography this is something that is really important to capture as a writer and that's the interesting part about being an anthropologist. When you write up your um, monograph um, like this you really have to skillfully go through um, and write to capture the reader, but also to educate them um, through that anthropological lens. The book is intended to serve as an ethnographic example of globalization. Although Newcomb misses an opportunity for deeper critical analysis of the various vignettes she provides for the reader, the interjection sets the stage for her filling the gap of ethnographic examples of globalization affecting a group of people while not offering a full critique on previous theories of globalization. Yet, Newcomb cannot be faulted for doing something she did not initially intend to do. And so I really defend her in this case because uh, the book is absolutely perfect 
for students, for people who want to become involved with Morocco. So um, even though this is a bit of a critique in terms of the theoretical portion, I do highly recommend this book. So overall, this book is a unique and well-written ethnographic addition to the dialogue on globalization in modern Morocco. This work could be used for future classes on anthropology of globalization, history of Morocco, and urban uh, anthropology. The text should also be wider interest to diplomats, journalists, and NGOs who work in Morocco to address some of the issues that Newcomb highlights. So this has been a review of Everyday Life in Global Morocco by Rachel Newcomb, published by Indiana University Press in 2017. So if you're interested, do go to your local indie bookstore and pick one up. And don't forget, this is part of the World Ethnography Project um, to place ethnographic works uh, throughout a collaborative Google Map. So check us out online. Thanks!